everybody welcome back to endure the athlete story on today's show we have the incredible story of joe mcconlock joe has undergone four open heart surgeries and has then went on to complete a half ironman he's the only person that we know of in the world that has ever done this joe's story is inspirational joe takes us through how he had to overcome four open heart surgeries his fight back to health and fitness and how his mindset and his positivity played a massive role. Joe tells us how triathlon was a solace for him in the midst of fear and uncertainty about his life. He takes us through how he was lying on a hospital bed fighting for a breath. They go and they race a half Ironman fighting for a time and positions. So... I hope you enjoy this episode. It's so motivating, so inspirational. And from someone like Joe, they have known for many years that he's never spoke about this before, never opened up about it. So we thank Joe for coming on and opening up, sharing his story. And he hopes that it can help and inspire and motivate other people. Um, So thanks to Joe for coming on the show. This episode will be in two parts, so this is part one, and we'll have part two coming next week as well. I really hope you enjoy the show. Please share it on to anyone that you feel needs it, that'll be inspired and motivated by it, and thanks again for listening. Thank you. Joe McConnell, welcome to Endure, the athlete story. Thanks for coming on the show. How's things? Not too bad, Emmett. Thank you. Good stuff. So just getting on it, I suppose we'll give a bit of background, Joe, the why we have you on the show. So Joe's, Joe's had four open heart surgeries. And not only is that extremely rare and probably known in the UK, has had that in the last 20 years or so, but uh, Joe just completed a half Ironman last week um, after these four procedures. So um, it's we don't think that it's ever been someone has ever done a half Ironman. And we'll get into the times and stuff too. Not only did he do it, done it very good times. Um, so it's an incredible story, Joe, coming from, I suppose you would agree it near death experience. They, they within a couple of years, um, being fit and healthy and completing a half Ironman. So could you just take us through, through that, how that happened? Um, well, it's, it's a long story, but my heart condition is, is something that spans over 20 years. I've had my first surgery in 1999. And before that diagnosis in 1989, I didn't know that I had any heart condition at all. In fact, I had never been in hospital and I had never been sick. Outside of what normal people would have had, colds, flu, stomach aches, things like that. I'd been in hospital, had stitches like any other child growing up, falling off your bike or, you know, things like that, bumping your head. I goes butt with a dog once or twice and had to get stitches. But I say that. Never been to a uh, GP um, or to a hospital. So I was what they called asymptomatic. So that sort of all started in 1989. But my triathlon story, which sort of coincides and has the same timeline, um, as this started in 1998. And that was the first time, I suppose, where I, it came under my head that I would like to do a triathlon. I did grow up playing football like everybody else, did a bit of cross-country running in school and 
you know, I think it was called the Mull Cup back then. It was just sort of I played in the school football team. They just anybody that had a bit of a sporting background got to do these things. So I was always mm-hmm. one of those people that played a bit of sport. I could swim. Um, I think I went to City of Day once with a friend of mine, Eddie Doherty, who's a very good swimmer, and uh, that once was enough. <laughs> I realised then that I could swim, but I wasn't actually a swimmer. Um, but, uh, you know, I was always about sport and enjoyed sport. I was getting to the end of sort of what I would have said, my football career. I played football at a decent level, and they were, you know, it was Saturday morning, Sunday morning, but I always played for a team that was won in leagues and cups and stuff like that. So yeah. for me, that was a decent level. Um, and a lot of gym stuff went to gym with my brother Paul, who you know, um, and that's sort of where triathlon came in. They had to sort of like we do something different, you know. Mm-hmm. And we tried everything over the years, but a boxing training and anything at all we would have tried. So Paul did a triathlon, the lame ball, um, in 1998. It was the old lame ball, probably not near prepared or didn't have the knowledge. To, it was just went out and someone who was reasonably fit and got around the course. I think he'd tell you it was very difficult, but we sort of decided that we would maybe do a bit of serious training. And, mm-hmm. and not when you have the Northwest Triathlon Club, we would have seen the guys about the Templemore Sports Complex. And back then, you're talking like people like Terry Donnelly and stuff who were, you know. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, we'll give this a go and see if we can, you know, do it and do it with a bit more sort of professionalism, if you like. Mm-hmm. So we started training for it. And when I look back, I never had a clue. Yeah, not really. I don't know if anybody did back then, but we definitely didn't. Um, and, and so that's how we started training over the winter. Our plan was to do the triathlon again in 1989. But that's then. I was still playing football at the time at a bit of a lower level than I had been for previous for previous years. I had sort of stepped down a bit, and I was probably the oldest person on the team. There's a lot of young young boys playing and stuff like that, and I was there mm-hmm. sort of to give. Um, took a knock to the rub and had a bit of a bruised rub but I mind that morning before I went out to play I felt fluish but that never stopped you you know if you had the flu back then you went to work you went and played your football match you did whatever you were doing and you just sort of got on with mm-hmm. so I did feel fluish that morning took a bit of a knock to the rub and I came home it was a Saturday morning game and I fell asleep probably because I was suffering from the flu <laughs> so I fell asleep on the sofa when I woke up the the Rub the knock the rubs had kicked in. It was, you know, if you've ever had a bruised rub, but I later mm-hmm. found out my rub was cracked. There's nothing they can do about that at all. It was painful to breathe and to take a deep breath. So, you know, my wife uh, came in from work. I think she was working that day. And she said, You're a bad caller. And I said, I'm not feeling my best. And I said, I got a knock on the side, you know. Mm. And that went on at about seven o'clock. And I said, You know, you're, I need to take you to a doctor. You're, you dead. I couldn't, I was struggling to breathe from what I know now was the cracked rub, but also yeah. felt. You know, I was shivering all those flu yeah. symptoms, sweats, cold sweats. So I never went to doctors, only and it took me. So it was an out of hours doctor, so it wasn't my regular doctor. And he just said, yeah, you've a bit of a flu and you've, you've damaged that rub. And he sounded at my heart as he do. And he says, do you know you have a heart murmur? I was 27 at the time. This was February 1999. I says, no, I've, you know, I've never been to a doctor's really. Like, and mm. he said, you need to go and see your GP. And I wasn't even sure who my GP was, to be honest. And I says, well, how do you make an appointment? And he said, um, go to your GP at nine o'clock on Monday morning. I went, what about the appointment? And he says, don't worry about it. I'll sort that. So he was able to sort that out in the out-of-hours system. Mm-hmm. So I went to work on Monday morning at seven o'clock with the flu and with the, with the cracked rub and spoke to my boss and said, look, I have a doctor's appointment at nine o'clock. I just was not explained. She said, that's no problem because I never missed a day at work or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So we went to the appointment at nine o'clock and the GP listened and basically what he, whatever the out of hours doctor had sent him, he just was interested in listening to my heart. He wasn't really interested in the flu or the, the knock to the ribs or anything. So he, he said, look, don't worry about this. And what he said, the may remember vividly was I had a friend at university and he the same thing. These things are trivial. It's nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. So he sounded at me and he went, oh, this isn't trivial. And I thought, what do you mean it's not trouble? And he says, well, sometimes a heart murmur can, could have been caused by your fever or whatever. He says, but you know, I don't know about this. This isn't trouble. Mm-hmm. I'm going to refer you to um, the cardiology department. Mm. So that was sort of it, to be honest. That was February, Emmett. And I went back to work. And it said, I need to go and see this heart murmur. I need to go and see a cardiologist. 
people are saying that loads of people have heard murmurs and that. To remember the day of my appointment, I, I don't know why I remember this date, but it was the 4th of May and I was working and had no symptoms at all. All the symptoms that were to come with this condition, I didn't have any of them ever. Light heads, blackouts, shortness of breath. Never did I feel sick or never did. I'm going to recover from the flu and the bruise. Rub. I was back playing football and doing, you know, mm. all the things I'd done. So um, asymptomatic totally the, over the whole time. So I went to see the cardiologist. And it was a, a Dr. McNeil, who was the lead cardiologist out McGillivan. And back then it was video tapes they used, you know, it was old technology. So I had what they call an echo, which is basically a scan of your heart. And it's the same as, as, as an expecting more would have. It's the gel on your chest mm-hmm. and they scan your heart. So I mind Dr. McNeil and he was very, I got to know him very well over the years, but he was an old school type doctor, wore the white coat and things like that. So he, he was doing the scan on me and very nice, but halfway through the scan he went his desk and looked at the phone and said can I have a videotape on here and Una was at the point and we were sitting oh, what's going on here so he went back about his business and scanning and a couple of minutes later he looked at the phone again but this time he was a bit more agitated and he said I need a videotape on here right away so I was starting to go this doesn't sound good like I mean as I say I'd never been in a doctor's before so uh, it was the sister I had worked on the health service, so the, the department sister came on and gave him the tape, and he recorded whatever he had seen at that time, mm-hmm. and he said to me, "I you put your shirt back on, so I was 27 at the time, so we sat down, and I mind looking at him, and he had a white coat on, and the pens in his pocket, that's, that's what I remember, it was sort of a surreal experience, like, mm. and I was looking at him and he said, right, he says, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I went, jeez. Like, I says, well, what's the good news? And they said, the good news is you came here today. And I went, well, I don't want to hear the bad news. And he turned in and he says, well, the bad news is you didn't come here today. You'd have been getting knocked the door within the next six months. And I was a candidate for cardiac sudden death. So it was a priority one. The aortic valve, uh, the condition was called the aortic stenosis, and the valve had practically closed and was over 90% closed. And this valve should open and close and let the blood flow through your heart, but mine is a jet, like a pinhole. And they still don't know how and it wasn't passing out or feeling sick or weak or anything like that. So he said to me, go home, do nothing, and I'll get in touch with you. And I had a mobile phone then, believe it or not. This was 1999. It was one of those old mobile phones. So we we, dropped, we left and we drove home. Um, he said, he told me I was going to have to have open heart surgery. And I said, what, what, does that, what is that? Hmm. And he says, well, they have to open you up. And he says, it's a very serious operation. And back then in 1999, it was a lot more serious than it is now because it was a lot more, it wasn't as refined. Mm-hmm. As it is now, so you were basically cracking open somebody's chest. And so he explained this to me and gave me leaflets, but it hadn't really sunk on. I was driving home and Una and me didn't really speak because we didn't know what to say. Mm. Um, Jane, my oldest daughter, was she had just turned one, she was one on one month today. Her birthday was on the 4th of April. I thought, you know, when they were talking about survival chances and things like that, and it was all just a blur in my head, you know. I mean, this can't be right. Like, I don't feel sick at all. So I went home, and on the way over the new bridge, the foil bridge, he rang and said, I've made an appointment for you to see a cardiologist in the Royal Victoria Hospital. Um, so that was a Tuesday, and I had to see him on the Thursday. I thought, God, this is all happening very quick. So I went to see the cardiologist on Thursday. His name was Gianfranco Campolani. He was Sicilian, and he was probably the most renowned cardiac surgeon in the UK at the time. It was either him or his brother who uh, was a cardiologist in the Glasgow Royal Infirmary at the time. So um travelled home, went to Belfast to see him. Sort of had really sunk on him. As a family, we nobody ever had to have heart surgery. We didn't really, maybe knew one or two people that had. So didn't really know how to phone my work and tell them what had happened and that I, wouldn't, I wasn't allowed to go back to work until I got this sorted. 
forgot I had my appointment in uh, Belfast and the surgeon had just said, you know, you're a priority and we'll have to get this done as soon as possible. So it was beginning of May I seen him and I, I sort of hung about doing nothing for about six weeks and fishing and stuff like that. And everybody was sort of waiting to see what happened and what this open heart surgery was about, suppose, including mm-hmm. myself. But it didn't really bother me. I have to be honest with you, it didn't really bother me. And it was probably a godsend because I didn't know what was coming. Mm. Well, that's what I was just going to ask br- you. Ignorance, that, uh, uh, ignorance was bliss. When you're waiting about for that, that six-week period, you're saying, like, what was going through your head? Because, as you um, say, it's I, just... I, I, at that time, uh, I have to say, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't overly worried and I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a difficult time for me. I just, at the time, it was a bit of a shock. But yeah. after that, and as I say, it was ignorance. What mm. I know, if I had known then, what I know now, I probably wouldn't have been as relaxed about mm. it. So uh, he said, look, we need to plan this surgery. You're going to have to have surgery. And we had a few leaflets and British Heart Foundation and things like that. But no one ever prepares you for the the reality of it. Like it's... Mm-hmm. So um, they said they would say anything for me. They didn't give me a date. And then as it got close to the time, they said the 23rd of June, I'm sure. But I was away fishing. <laughs> and when I got home, sort of news something not right here you know the house the lights weren't on and you know there's just something you know did you ever get a feeling yeah and when i went that went down there were people standing waiting on me there family members and they said you have to go to royal tomorrow they mixed up the dates i actually was in on the 21st which is the longest day from the summer solstice mm-hmm. um, not that i remember anything about it so i had to go to the hospital and even then we travelled up the Royal and there was members of the family there, my wife was, I still wasn't aware and I don't think they were what was actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, got me in the hospital and then they started the you know, tests and things like that, shave you from your neck to your knees and we we're having a bit of a laugh about that and stuff and then I was having my surgery the next day so they give you sedatives and that so my memory of that was very I don't remember a lot about you, but doped, you know. Mm-hmm. So next thing I remember, I was waking up, and that was probably the worst feeling. I felt as if I was hit to a train. I couldn't move. I was black and blue. I couldn't move uh, anywhere. I, I just couldn't lift my torso up off the bed. It was like mm. there was a weight on you that you couldn't move. You were trapped under, and you couldn't move. I thought, jeez, what happened here? Like, did something go wrong? But nothing did go wrong. I mean, the first surgery was, I went down and had my surgery. It's a straightforward enough surgery. They, they replaced the valve, but I hemorrhaged. So okay. I had to go down during the night again and be opened up again. And this is where all my bar started. When you open somebody up for the first time, they work on heart, it's in a sack of liquid. Mm-hmm. But once you open that up, that's gone. So... I was all scar tissue and then opening up the second time of peeling things away and stuff like that. But I had the surgery and I had a, a tissue valve and at that time, to say it was 1999, and that was good, I suppose, because it gave me a better chance of not needing as much medication and stuff like that. Anybody that's had heart surgery would know that. So mm-hmm. um, the first surgery was a real shock to me and I never felt sick until I said I was never sick until they opened me up. <laughs> you know, and, and the weeks, two weeks after that was just, you know, I never had any procedure ever. Mm-hmm. And then I had this, which was probably one of the most invasive and I had to be open twice because of the hemorrhage and stuff. So it was sore and stuff like that. But I got out of hospital, you know, and I started to recover. It's amazing what the body can do. Within four weeks, I mind batting a tennis ball off, off the wall, a tennis racket. Just <laughs> to do something so or just the... Just, just the... I was so bored and it was the summertime. I think Wimbledon was on. And, yeah. you know, and I, was, I was batting a tennis ball off the, the garage wall. But never at that time it crossed my mind. They started back and they triathlon. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. So it just had my recovery. Got back to work, got back and did a bit of exercise. I actually played football matches again after, believe it or not. Um, so sort of got back to what I called normal, but the triathlon, the whole triathlon thing was shelled for me at that mm-hmm. stage. Um, Paul had went on to do a few, but always had one eye on it and I cycled a bit. Mm-hmm. I like cycling, I cycled a bit. 
So, um, I think, you know, I was under the care of doctors. I made a really good recovery back at work. It was as if, you know, I felt I recovered really quickly. I think I was back to work in October, mm-hmm. you know, and I had my surgery in June. So, you know, I was grand. I was young. I was 27. So then about 2004, it was the triathlon motion happening again. So I started training again. Mm-hmm. Um, with a view of doing the Row Valley Triathlon, and that would have been in May, the beginning of May. They used to swap the dates about, I'm sure, back then, between the Lane Ball and the Row Valley. So that would have been May 2005. So training away for triathlon, swim, bike, and run down the triathlon club uh, with a view of doing that triathlon. Mm-hmm. And went to one of the sessions he used to do was the master swimming session William Street pulling on Monday night. So went to that session, did the session, came home, was lying in bed, and then woke me and said, your chest is making a strange noise. And I laughed. I said, what do you mean? She says, this whole bed is shaking. There's something wrong. So again, she talked me going, they going to an out-of-hours GP. Mm-hmm. So this was, this was a Thursday night, and I think the triathlon was that Saturday. So um, up there, GP, GP again, not my own GP. I can't, I don't even know who the GP was, but he sounded me, and he went into panic mode. And again, I was sitting going, oh, these boys were panicking because when you have heart surgery and you go to a GP and someone doesn't know your history, the, the first thing they do when they sound your heart is go, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound normal, and it doesn't. So I thought he was overreacting. He panicked a bit. So he said, you need to go to the hospital right away. I said, right, okay. He says, how did you get here? I said, I drove up. He's right, you need to go to the hospital. So I left the GPs and uh, he was panicking more than me, I, w- I would simply say. So I left there and I drove to Elton McElvin. And when I got there, there was a guy with me at the door with a chair. And he says, look, you, you should have came here in an ambulance. You shouldn't have drove. Mm. I said, I'm okay. Looking. So I went down to the hospital. Oh, I was... Um, Thursday night, seen my cardiologist on the Friday morning and he did a scan and told me I was going to need the valve replaced again. So it hadn't lasted six years, which was a bit of a shock to me. And did they give you any time scale of what it might have lasted or did they expect it to last forever? It it was a pretty new uh, aortic valve replacement in 1999 was a pretty new procedure. Before that, when I mind reading it, I think I'm really lucky. People just died because they Mm -hmm. couldn't do nothing. And, and that's the way it was. And so, you know, it wasn't a million years before that. So it was still in its infancy, that procedure, I would say. Mm. So the valve I had was tissue and how they described to me, it had hardened uh, like a like a pepperoni and a pizza. That's how they described it to me mm-hmm. and that it would need replaced. Um, because it was my second surgery, I was going to have to get a, a what they call a mechanical valve, on, which is titanium and all other materials. Like, so... Mm-hmm. But with that, there was other, there was things where you had to be on warfarin and more medication for the rest of your life, which was grand and really bore me. But I was worried about the surgery because I knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that I knew all the things that was going to happen and the pain and discomfort you'd be in after it. And as I say, ignorance, ignorance was bliss, and I didn't have that the second time. So that time. I was lucky enough, I went to the hospital and I didn't get out. And this was in May uh, 2005, so six years basically after my, my initial surgery. So I went down um, to the hospital and May, and May, I wrote some dates down, I went down to the hospital in May um, 2005 and I had my surgery in May 2005. I stayed in the hospital, I was in about three weeks, and I went to the Royal, had my surgery. They did the surgery and they put on the, the titanium valve. Um, I woke up and I wasn't let down by my previous experience. I was in pain and agony. Um, really sick, really, really sick, throwing up. Didn't feel well at all. Didn't feel as well as I felt after the first one. And I put that down to a second surgery. Mm. The second surgery wasn't unusual, especially for aortic valves, because people who did get a tissue one often had to get it changed to the mechanical one. Yeah. Not as quick as me, but so sort of put it down that but it was really really sick when it you know you, you had there's a process you come out of your your surgery you go in the icu and they get you out of there in a day and they hide the pens you know then they get you up and walking and, you know it's a very it, it is a process that they have they bring you back to your feet and then you go to the hospital ward and they 
heard taking dreams out, you've wires sticking out of your chest. Anyone who ever has heart surgery would know that. And as those days progressed, the better you started feeling. I wasn't feeling better. I was feeling sicker and sicker. And I think I threw up for most part of seven days. And it's a long 24 hours. It's, it's, it's you know, when you're sick like that for seven days and you're vomiting and a mind lying in the bed at that time thinking, Jeez, I can't go on like this, can't go on and on and on. So I came around a wee bit and they said they were going to let me out, but I definitely wasn't feeling well, I remember that. And before you leave hospital, you get an echo. Mm. So I got an echo and I was sent home, packing. Didn't feel well, wasn't eating, felt sick. Something just wasn't right. Mm. So got sent for an appointment about 10 days after being home to go to Elton Galvin. Went over, seen my cardiologist, and he's did another echo, which was a found strains. And he just said, you know, he, he won't be going home. So she was sent home to get pajamas and things like that. So I said, what's wrong? And he says, before you left the hospital in the Royal, you have what we call a paravalvular leak. Because basically, you're bleeding inside the valve that the stitches haven't taken. So I was losing weight rapidly. I was feeling sick. I couldn't eat. I was lightheaded for the first time in my life. Mm. Um, I just felt, only time I, I, I felt sick. So I was in hospital. I had been in before my surgery for the best part of three weeks. I was in the Royal for a week. Got out for 10 days and I was back in hospital. And that's where I stayed basically for the next 10 weeks. Um, I was in isolation and things like that. They were doing a lot of tests. They weren't sure what happened. They thought the mechanical valve had stuck on one side. There was a lot of, they, could, they couldn't see in the scans. There was a lot of blood mm. going, regurgitating, not going where it should have been, but they couldn't really see where it was coming from. So basically the only option was to get me back and more surgery, open me up again. And the surgeon, Mr. Campbell, and he had done two previous surgeries, was home in Sicily on holidays. But they couldn't do the surgery anyway because it was too soon mm. after the other one. So I stayed in hospital. My cardiologist, Dr. McGillan, was going on holidays himself. And he put me in an ambulance and sent me to Royal. So I spent a couple of weeks there before surgery. And then the surgical team was gathered. They got back from their holidays. And they all came in and seen me on Sunday night. And I was in the operating theater that Monday morning at 6 o'clock, I think. And I had felt the whole time in between. I had felt sick. It was a long time in hospital. I'd lost mm. a lot of weight. I think I was maybe getting down by nine stone, maybe on earth, you know. Mm. Um, so they did the surgery, and the minute I woke up, I knew whatever they had done, they had fixed the problem that was causing me to feel the way I felt because I felt so much better. Mm. And even the pain of opening a third time didn't really matter because I felt, I knew whatever they had done, they had fixed so that's when they told me the valve had leaked and we was bleeding inside and they got it stopped and got the valve sealed up and everything was grand. So usual recovery, got out, got my scan, got out and everything was fine. Wasn't a lot of medication, was very weak and lost a lot of weight. And again, triathlon at that stage never entered my mind because for me, I tried in 99, um, Heart failure stopped it for me again in 2005, and it stopped it again for me. So mm. didn't really do much by way of exercise for a long time because I couldn't. Mm. Um, didn't get back to work. It was over a year. That was a long recovery for me, a very long recovery, and I wasn't in good shape. Uh, I had felt I had lost any athleticism, I had my physique, everything went out the window, but I did recover and I did, mm. um, but it was slow. This was 2005 and for a record, I actually did get doing my first triathlon, but it was in 2011, 12 mm. years um, after my first attempt. But all oh. those years in between was very slow road to recovery, especially after the third surgery. Yeah. And what I did was started to strengthen conditioning, lift weights, light weights, ridiculously light weights, um, just 
anything, they try and get back to some sort of physical shape. Sturdy swim. I actually mm-hmm. became a better swimmer than I ever was previously. Not that I'm a good swimmer, but better than I was previous to that. Yeah. Um, because I found that exercise very good. It wasn't as sore on me. Mm-hmm. Just didn't run at all. For some reason, and I don't know whether it was just my physical makeup, my physique, or the heart surgery running was very, very difficult to get on me. Mm-hmm. And remained like that for years. Got back on the bike and found that I enjoyed the bike, liked the bike, and because of that, I was able to do more and more of it. Mm. So that was 2005, and again, both times, it was about a four-year gap before I got back. So I would say 2009, I felt I might have a go with the triathlon. Um, and by the time I started getting the, the 2010 season was too late. It didn't feel that mm-hmm. I was ready for the 2010 season. Paul at this time had done numerous triathlons and had gotten pretty decent and pretty good at them mm-hmm. and knowledgeable. And that was a big thing. He had the knowledge. Um, very apprehensive of me training and training the way they trained. But um, they had a very good training philosophy, which you know now yourself is so one and that suited me. Yeah. And that's all I did for two years was zone one. I was the last off the bike, the last and on the run, the last out of the pool in every training season. Not because I wanted to train more than everybody else, but because it was so much slower than everybody else. But that was okay. Yeah. I was doing it, and, and that was the important thing. And you started to meet other people who were coming on the triathlon, Sean Heaney, Gary O'Donnell, Colin Quigley, and you know, I started to enjoy the training and we would have went yeah. to Platinum in the morning and done some biking. You know the routine yourself. Yeah. Joined the, the, the club. So really enjoyed it. It was feeling good. It was in good health. Um, everything else was going well. By that stage, I had three children. Um, work was going well. Every other aspect of my life was going well. I thought this might be a time to give this a go. And the training was going well and I did no speed work at all. Mm-hmm. Back then, none. Two weeks out, I think, from the race that I was going to do, which was the Roe Valley Triathlon again in 2011. That was the first race on the calendar. That's a sprint distance, isn't it? Sprint distance distance triathlon, and that's all I ever done. Um, But I went down there to finish it, to try and get round the course. And to be honest with you, I didn't know where I was or not Mm -hmm. on that stuff. I did all the distances before and stuff like that, but I had watched triathlons and it's not an easy sport, especially for those people who are before and, you know, racing them. And I thought, God, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. So I trained and I trained back then what I would considered well. It was all zone one training, plenty of recovery. Um, looked after myself, was feeling good. The cardiologist was very, you know, he said, if it's not bad, he was asking me what I was doing. I had annual checkups and was telling him what I was doing. He actually loved him about it. Mm. And he says, look, it's not doing you any harm go ahead and that was one thing that I discovered there wasn't anybody on the planet would say to me go ahead and do a triathlon it'll not do you any harm it was sort of my decision and there was no no medic going to give me the, the go yeah. ahead you know I, I had heart failure once you have heart failure you always have it and I was always in heart failure as opposed to in a triathlon and being in heart failure is not a good idea not that people have done it before with different heart conditions but this stage I had three open heart surgeries and probably no one had done it with that then. Mm. So but the cardiologist gave me some comfort in the that he didn't tell me not to do it. Yeah. He said I was in good shape, I was healthy, all my numbers, all my readings, all my tests were good. And I had been training away, so I had the Row Valley Triathlon and I did it and um I did it in one hour eleven minutes and fifty eight seconds. Which is I went on the race with it. A very good very good time. Me. I thought it was, I thought it for was your, good. for your um, first triathlon after three heart surgeries. It's an incredible time. Um I went down with it saying I'd like to do under one thirty. Under one twenty five would be really good because you look down the list in previous years and you said, I'd like to be a tum, I'd like to be a tum. you know, and we all do it. Like, you know what, that's why it's the nature of the people who get into the sport like we yeah. all do it that's why we're there so i was couldn't believe one hour 11 minutes and 58 seconds and 
wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. As I got under the end of the run, you know, I was working like anybody else, but mm-hmm. and I really, really enjoyed it, and it was it was a great, you know. It was great for me to to get it done, and because I'd been trying for twelve years, mm-hmm. and I got it done. So, being the person I am, I entered the lane ball, which was in a couple of weeks' time, and I did that, and it was a real storm. Again, thirty third in the Row Valley, by the way, which I was chuffed. You know, yeah. there wasn't as big a crowds doing them then. So I entered the lane ball and did that, and it was a time of uh, one hour fourteen, but it was a real stormy day, and I actually came nineteenth. So that. Tells you what the times, yeah. you know. So, top twenty was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So then the mentality changed from someone who had heart disease and heart failure to being a triathlete. Mm-hmm. So during that year, and I did try the lock at Roma. It was the first year that was on, two thousand eleven, I'm sure. And did the swim, good swim. I think it was only one of our group doing it that day. Just it was a new triathlon, and most of the guys didn't enter. Mm-hmm. So did the swim, did the bike, uh, an ordinary road bike with ordinary wheels, and got off the bike in second place. <laughs> um, got on the transition, went, "What's wrong here? There's no other bikes." And then people who I knew were watching said, "You're second." I thought I couldn't believe it. So got out in the run, and the run was never my best discipline. Didn't like it. Wasn't a fast runner. Uh, people started to pass me in the run, but I held on for fourteenth place and I can't remember my time but mm. I think it was one twelve. it wasn't the Roe Valley was still my best time so that was where my triathlon journey started and then just for years after that I'd done different tri- all sprints I, done, yeah. I think I'd done two Olympics and but all sprints um <clears throat> by 2000 and city of Derry then came along yeah um, health was good I was focusing on triathlon focus on work having regular checkups Dr. McNeil, my cardiologist, was saying, keep doing what you're doing. That was his line. It's not doing you any harm. Started to take it a wee bit more serious for the for the city of Derry traveling because that was a big event. The numbers doing traveling then had just exploded. Um, yeah. Got 25th in that, I think, out of a field of well over 500. Yeah. And that was good. And then I started to get more serious on it. I thought, maybe I could go under 110 here. So I did a full season. And every race I did was 106, 107, 108. So that was sort of the pinnacle of my mm-hmm. sprint. I never got any better now, but I was happy yeah. with that, like you know, because I never expected to get times like that, never ever. That's Especially with incredible me. times. Bit, with, they were, but uh, with that condition. With with the condition, with with <laughs> the years doing it, you were only a few years at it, and plus like especially the, the condition and even that mental aspect of did that ever bother you that when you're pushing on the race that something might happen here or did you just have to completely blank it out? It was, no, it was always there and it, it never, and there were some races, the first race I went on, I'd done the lane ball one year and you know that's our home race and I really wanted to do well on that and I did a time of 108 but I mind getting under the back end of the run and thinking to myself, I was really suffering as you do and I thought this couldn't be, uh, during the run, I said to myself, this couldn't be good for my heart because I was really on the limit mm-hmm. and I was in the red. And at that time, I mind saying to myself, push on, if you die, you die. <laughs> and that was my mentality, which was crazy, like, and it gets worse. Uh... But that's the mentality I had. And, uh, you know, a lot of triathletes do have it, not just me, I just have this extra condition, but that's what I was prepared to do to get the finish line, yeah. to take those risks and push on. I enjoyed the sport that much, I did. I really did, and I done. I was doing a lot better than I had ever imagined. As I say, the mm. first time I thought one thirty would be good, and here I was now pushing under one ten, and you know I'm being at the front end of the race, and I was at best I was running a high twenty minutes for five k, which wasn't good, good really, you know. So my other disciplines, my swim, my bike were really good. I was always getting in the top five in the bike, which yeah. And for me, that was good enough. It didn't think I would ever get any better than that and I didn't get any better than that but that was okay because by that stage I was well in my 40s and I'd beat a lot of people who I would have held in high esteem as being good triathletes like mm-hmm. so I was really really happy with how I'd done in the sport and sort of after about 2016-2017 I probably pulled back a wee bit and went on the more enjoying the sport or I tried mm-hmm. I tried to enjoy it more in the sense of just go out do the sport 
forget about times and joy it, but you can never do that as a triathlete, or I could never do it. And I know most of the people that train, we can't do it once you, as yeah. you say, on the toes on the line, it's already so. Yeah, I never really fully did that. Um, the career then sort of took over a bit, you know, I was traveling from day to Belfast every day. They were I was still training, but I wasn't doing as many races and I wasn't doing as good as times. I was sort of in around the 110. Mm-hmm. Anywhere between one nine and one twelve, I was doing, and I was happy with that because I was still on the sport and I was enjoying it. Probably cycled a wee bit more. Mm-hmm. So that brings me then sort of to my fourth um, surgery, which was totally unexpected. Um, I was working away, uh, did the two thousand eighteen lame ball as I say, that okay. I think I'd done a time of one ten, whatever seconds it was, but raging at that because I thought mm-hmm. it would be nice to get under the 110 that was our home race did several races the year before I was enjoying it was enjoying the sport and feeling good yeah, Joe health wise and... yeah, no never I never had any I would always say I never had any symptoms ever the only time I was sick was after surgery mm-hmm. and between the second and third surgery I was was really I would say it wasn't well so had my annual uh, my cardiologist, Dr. McNeil, retired and I had sort of been transitioned to a new cardiologist, Dr. Hughes. And they're all very good, but um, that was a big change because I was under Dr. McNeil for 20 years and he knew me very well and I knew him. And you, know, you just mm-hmm. get a wee bit of confidence in that. Mm-hmm. Although Dr. Hughes, you know, knew me well, got to know me well. Obviously, Dr. McNeil, and, you know, the handover had filled around in the sport in the background and things like that. So, December, um, I was traveling up and down to Belfast, working away and training for the 2019 triathlon season. Mm-hmm. And I had sort of thought in my mind, I'd pick it up a wee bit now, things have settled, we work, you know. I had for about four or five years, I've been doing a lot of courses, getting promotions and things like that. I'm more focused on my career, mm-hmm. but still training. But that had all settled and I thought, I'd maybe give the 2019 uh, season a wee blast. And I was starting to think about going longer distance then. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of my mates, you know, Ironman and things like that had become much more popular. When we were doing it, it was always sprints, yeah. very few. And then Ironman and things like that, and people were doing really well at them. And, and that was on my head to maybe try that with, if I got a wee bit more time. So I uh, went for a check up in December 2018. And <coughs> you have what you call a TOE, which is a camera that goes down in your throat and gets a good look at the heart. And you're sort of sedated for that. Mm-hmm. So woke up or came around after and uh, Dr. Hughes came to see me and very quickly said, you're going to need more surgery. Couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. It was the shock of my life. And people say, but you've heart disease and you've had three surgeries. But I thought, I genuinely thought that it was you know, done, three times yeah. I'm fixed. So I couldn't, I didn't believe it. And I didn't believe, and I used every excuse, oh, it's a new cardiologist, doesn't know me. And I never told anybody. I went home and said, I had my checkups, same as it was this last 10, 14 years. It's okay. Like. And then I eventually told him, this doctor says I might need more surgery. I went back to work the next day, you know, and I didn't tell anybody about it. And I said, don't be saying anybody because I don't think it's right. I don't believe it. I feel too good. And I continue to train. The 2019 um the 2019 season mm. so i didn't hear nothing that this was late december just before christmas so christmas and the new year happened and then i got an appointment out to go to roma hospital to have a diet test mm-hmm. so i went to that appointment and the, the, the surgeon or the, the consultant was there and i said there you know what's this test for is this to see if I need the surgery or not? And she looked at me and said, no, you need the surgery. You're only functioning your heart. You, you're in heart failure. You're only functioning. You're, you're functioning less than 20%. I said, but how you have got a titanium valve and these things are supposed to last a lifetime. She says, you have another condition called uh, panis, where basically you overheal. So I was overhealing. So my own tissue and my aorta was growing over my valve, the, the titanium valve, and stopping it from working, blocking it, basically. And the overhealing of the scar tissue from the previous 
three surgeries had got, you know, it had got so, like, concrete. That's how they ex- explained it to me. Says, you're going to need more surgery. And she says, I am just doing this test to make sure that your arteries and all are okay. Because I never, my heart surgery was never to do with me lifestyle or I didn't need arteries ever. I mean, mm-hmm. very rarely would they open someone up in their late 40s and not do a bypass mm-hmm. because they're in there. I never needed anything like that. I had no other illnesses, no other conditions whatsoever. Yeah. Just the risk of heart surgery. So I think she realized at that appointment that, that I was, I don't know, you could maybe say in denial. Mm-hmm. So she said, you, you, you need to go and see the heart surgery. So Mr. Camblana, who did the previous three and was very highly thought of, and I had retired. So I thought, God. So I had to go to the Royal to see the heart surgeon and I worked right up that and it was the 26th of February and I took a week's holidays because I had holidays to take before the end of the holiday year. <coughs> so I went to see him and he he put me right. <laughs> he explained very graphically the condition I was in. Mm-hmm. Took my car keys off me. Told me to forget about my career. Um, Asked me what I did for a living, and I told them what I did. But I travelled to Belfast every day. I was a senior manager in the health service. And says, well, you know, that's that's all over. Like mm-hmm. there, man, he told me that, and I I don't remember really much about it. It was like I, I don't know what happened maybe that day, but they put it in their words. It was very difficult. Um, and it was there, and she was distraught. I was just did not know what was going on. I think I think I went under shock. Mm-hmm. And he called for a test, and I can't remember what the test is. I still can't remember because he had just explained to me that I was about to have this surgery. A fourth heart surgery was very rare. He couldn't guarantee me that I would survive, and that he didn't really know how to go about it. Um. And he said with all the scar tissue and adhesions that it was going to be very difficult and that he would be starting to plan with his surgical team that day how he was going to do this surgery. And basically what they have to do is put together a file, a, a worst-case scenario file, if you like, mm-hmm. of all these things that could happen and what they can do to try and, you know, stop them from happening. So I left the Royal that day, couldn't drive home, and the next week was probably one of the worst weeks what I've ever endured. But believe it or not, I went out on a bike that evening. I was trying to keep some, and I wasn't in a good place. And I was out cycling with Paul, and I told him that night, sort of very briefly, what had happened and what was happening. Mm-hmm. I think he was in shock as well. So he came to see me, him and some other members of my family that night. So I told them, and I told them, and I didn't want my mother and father, you know, because mm-hmm. it was very serious. And I didn't want my children, you know, because they were both at very pivotal times and they're at, at university and stuff like that and exams. And I just thought this was the end of February that they didn't need to know. So he had told me that day that he would be planning the surgery and it would be done as quick as they could possibly safely do it. Mm-hmm. and I didn't know at that time I thought maybe they'd be talking a few weeks because that happened before but it took them so long to plan the surgery I had to go and go through so many tests um, and one of the people I went to see was a Dr. Wally McBride which was his name believe it or not and he was the head anaesthetist in the Royal or one of the chief anaesthetists and he looked through my folder and he, he was looking at my folder and he kept lifting his head off his desk and looking up at me and me and Una were at the appointment, and after about 10 minutes, he said nothing. He, he just looked at me and says, your medical history is horrific. This was before the fourth surgery. And I went, and he looked at Una and says, were you with him when this all started? And he tried to be light-hearted, and she says, I, and he says, I would think so, because you would never take this on. And I was sitting going, what's in that folder that he's telling me this? Like? So how they play the waiting game, and Initially, when I was told in December that I was going to have a fourth surgery, I sort of said, I can't come back from this. I knew how difficult it was the previous three times. I was a younger, fitter man. 
And I thought I can't come back from this. I told that I was just about to lose my job that I had worked on it for almost 30 years. And there was just so much change from then. I saw thought was to give up. I just thought, oh, I'm never gonna never gonna get back from this. It's impossible they do mm-hmm. this and the way they were talking to me, you know, if I, I said if I get out of this surgery and that was a big off, um there's no way I mean I never even thought about triathlon it was the last thing in my head just surviving really it was mm-hmm. but I went out on the bike that night that they broke the news to me and that probably was a good thing to do um, and I continued to ride my bike and I made a decision after about two weeks that I was going to continue to ride it and we all know what it's like to prepare for a race to train mm-hmm. I put together a training schedule to get me to the operating theater and the best shape that I felt that I could be in to deal with this surgery. Having had it done three times before, uh, I knew, you know, the effect it had in the body and the physical body and the mental body. So I put together a training schedule and it didn't include any running, no surprise, <laughs> because I always felt running was a wee bit more taxing on me. Yeah. And uh, so I cycled. Not hard and not long, a lot shorter than what I was doing, but I stayed on my bike and I swam. And I did a lot of strength and conditioning, press-ups, pull-ups, and I put weight on mm-hmm. intentionally. So that's what I did. Uh, everybody else was, was preparing to race a triathlon, to train to race a triathlon, and I was training to have heart surgery and give myself the best chance uh, of survival. So I did that, and believe it or not, I had my surgery. They told me I would have my surgery on the twenty on the third of June. So I was in the hospital on the Sunday, the second. And believe it or not, I was on the exercise bike in the cardiac ward on the Sunday night. After um, and that was our before, before the surgery. The night before I was going for surgery. So that was the mentality that I had. And the surgeon and and the anaesthetist came to see me that night, and they were. You know, saying that this was going to be a very difficult surgery for them, and they were giving me no guarantees whatsoever. And they didn't really know because they couldn't see things with all the scar tissue. They didn't know what they were getting into, really. And they were very honest with me, very brutal, but very honest. So when you're going for heart surgery, your family leave you that night, and that sort of time between that and going down for surgery is a long strange time you could mm-hmm. never understand it unless you've experienced it so i was fat you know i trained and i went down and i thought i, w- I wasn't worried or i wasn't you know I, mentally i was well prepared I didn't feel as bad I had, as i did in the lead up to it or when the news was broke to me i had sort of said there's nothing i can do i've done everything that i can do mm-hmm. now Mm-hmm. to bring myself to this in this shape and I was in good shape I felt for, for going for surgery so um, the Sunday night the surgeon came, came and he went through what was going, they were going to try and do and what they were going to try and do was replace my aortic root because I had that many surgeries they just didn't think they could stitch another valve and be flesh because you're stitching titanium or man-made material and be flesh and it's mm-hmm. difficult so he was going to replace the whole aortic root and the aorta and new valve and anything else that he needed to do when he was in there and that's what his plan was um because i had so much scar tissue my heart was stuck to the back of my chest so nowadays when they do heart surgery you can get on about three and a half hours they open you up they open you up with your beating heart exposed they then put you on bypass directly into your heart and stop your heart my heart had to be stopped before they opened me up uh, for fear of cutting it, they cut you open with what they mean. You looks like a grinder, your sternum, and I had already been wired and stitched there several times before, so <coughs> that made it more difficult. So I was bypassed the uh, my groin, which is a surgery in its own. You're lumping about for three or four weeks after, and that presents much more risk. So uh, for fear of putting anybody off going for heart surgery, I mean it is survivable. I'm proof of that but just the, the experience of those weeks from your surgery 
they start to get out of ICU and on the hospital ward and thing. Um, I'll give you some detail, and it's pretty graphic. So, surgeon and an anaesthetist came to see me, a lady called Dr. Bull. Bull is her surname. She's the leading most anaesthetist in, in Northern Ireland. And she wanted to reside over my surgery, and she did. I seen her on the Sunday night, and I seen her on Thursday, and she hadn't gone home because in previous surgery, discovered that I had a very high intolerance to things like morphine and pain relief. <coughs> and that is not a good thing to have when you're having heart surgery because the pain is excruciating, especially a fourth time. So she wanted to be there, and they, they were trying to make up like a pain-killing cocktail that wouldn't make me sick. So um, the surgeon said to me, is there anything you want to say to me before you go? And I says, you get me off the table and I'll do the rest. And they never said nothing. They just left. And I thought, so they started to give me a sedative. So I lay there and they had no effect on me. I was wide awake, looking at the theater lights the next morning at four o'clock with a team of surgeons around me. And everybody over that week said four times, I never, I don't think we've ever, you know, and people don't mean any harm when they're saying that, but you're going, Christ almighty, like what, you know, what am I in for here? So away I went and had the surgery. And I don't remember anything about it. You'd probably need to speak to you now about that, but apparently the surgery was long, 16 to 18 hours. Um, I actually have a recording, I'll let you hear something. I don't think it probably would be appropriate to put in this podcast, but I'll let you hear. Um, seven hours in, they were going to call it. That wasn't good. So he, he spoke to Una, and there's a recording of that conversation. And basically, as I say, hard surgery now can be done and dusted in three and a half hours. Seven hours in, they had just basically got to my heart. Um, because of all the scar tissue and he, he described it as a concrete jungle and when he got there he discovered that there's four arteries going into your aorta two going in and two going out and they were very close to my aortic valve most people would have 20 or 30 mil of a gap so that was the first stumbling block you know, getting on there was very difficult. I'd been on bypass a lot, and there's a lot of things coming at memory loss, hallucination, kidney failure, diabetes, all that. Um, so he got on there, and he discovered this, and it was a bit of a blow to him, he said, because he couldn't do the aortic root replacement. So they stopped surgery for a while, because he said he had two mil to work with, and they had to make a decision. So... He, he told me after that he remembered me telling him, you get me off the table. So he said I had a track, and he said he was exhausted. He had been doing all the work for the lead surgeon, a man called uh, Mr. Ruben Jaganathan, a Malaysian. Very, I know now he's one of the most renowned cardiac surgeons in the world. So uh, he had a go, and he did it. He had two mil, he said. Two mil, that's what he said, I had to work with. And in that time, he damaged, he says he had he damaged all things, the electrics of my heart, the septum, which your heart's broken by four chambers. And, you know, if you damage them, it's like cross, crossing two wires, the electrics get messed up. But that was okay. That was, you know, a secondary um, result of doing the surgery. So he got the valve on and he cleaned up the aorta, all the panis growth of the scar tissue off it the best they could. And he said, once they do a heart surgery like that and they fix the problem that you're trying to fix, they start to revive the patient because you're clinically dead. You're on a bypass machine that's breathing for you, it's pumping your blood, it's keeping your brain alive, oxygen to your brain. And I had been on it for a very long time, which brings lots of risk. So he said they started to, started to take me off that and that's where complications can happen. But he said, in all his career, he never seen or experienced what happened next. Um, he said with them, he says it can take people hours to get their lungs open, to get their kidneys functioning, their bladder functioning, any, you know, the heart beating. And he said within 25 minutes, my lungs were to be 90% capacity. 
the kidneys were working almost 100. He said it was like magic. It was like turn, flicking a switch. Once they started the heart again, he says everything else came on the line. And he said he felt so overjoyed himself mm. because it had been the most challenging surgery he had ever done. And he felt, you know, and he said he kept thinking back, saying to me, saying, and you get me off the table. And I'll do the rest. Mm. And he said to me, when I came around and he came up to see me, he says, You'll need a you'll need a pacemaker and this and that. And I said, That's okay. He says, Your kidneys or you thought I might have needed kidney dialysis or he says, You're not a diabetic, you're making insulin, your kidneys are functioning, your lungs are now a hundred percent. It's this is amazing. Like, you know, you've mm. been after a couple of days he kept coming and look at this monitor and there was a surgeon in his registrar and his registrar says I'm just like in the Sita, we have a bet going. I don't think you'll need a pacemaker. But the surgeon was adamant that that. He says, I damaged it. I seen what the damage had done. Your heart can't, the electrics of your heart are damaged. It can't work right. It's impossible. It's over two years since I had my surgeon. I don't have a pacemaker. Unbelievable. So, so show's over. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed part one of this remarkable story. Stay tuned next week for part two, where Joe takes us through his recovery from his fourth open heart surgery and his road to the half Ironman. And he tells us about his training, his mindset, the things he had to endure and the things he had to go through just to get there and just to get back on his feet. So, again, really inspiring stuff, and I hope you enjoy it. If you did enjoy the show, please share it on with anybody who might be interested. Please leave a review, leave us comments, feedback. We'd love to hear hear from you. And I hope you enjoy. But thanks again for listening. It means a lot. Cheers. <laughs>